0: Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting for the Matrix on the 5th of February 2009. For the newcomers, I advise you to go into cuttingthroughmetrics.com, and on the website you'll, you can download as many audios as you wish to do, or previous talks I've given over the, the years on uh, history, basically, the history that's not published in the, the school books that you get. It's not mentioned much by the media either. At least it's never connected by the media. That's more accurate. You give it a little, little bits of information, but not the in-depth story on any of them. And I try to give you shortcuts through the talks and use sources, the, the authorized sources in a sense, because that's what you have to go by to prove that what's happening to other people if they care to, to listen. And you'll find that the big boys themselves are very good at publishing books by themselves. They like to boast about how they've pulled off so many coups and revolutions and even set up different types of structural governments across the planet over the last hundred-odd years and how they're doing it now, in fact. As we live, most people don't care because we float through lives and we're fed trivia. But it's happening nonetheless, and it is a controlled movement. Uh, it's not hard at all to track it down through time. They say they publish lots of books, and you'll find the, bit, the main players are always the same family lines, and some of them have been on the go for 50, 60, 70, 80 years even, uh, and still pushing strong like the Rockefellers for the same agenda. It's not money they're after. So I try to give you the shortcuts, and i also look into Alan Watts sentient, Sentinel.eu for transcripts of these talks written in the various languages of Europe you can download them and print them up, pass them around because we do need shortcuts in this day and age now for those who listen I always ask people to help uh, keep me going you can donate by looking at the cuttingthroughmetrics.com there's buttons on the website there for donations and you can also order my books and discs and so on from there as well that keeps me going and believe you me there's not a lot comes in here as you hear on this show and other shows I'm on are to keep the companies going. They pay for the airtime, they pay the engineers, and they pay for equipment and maintenance and so on. And even those with your own personal computer, uh, you'll know uh, that uh, maintenance is, is always ongoing. Never mind if a radio station is a lot more expensive. I've been going through over a hundred years of history, really. I could go much, much further back into the past, and I did go and touch on it briefly, to do with secret societies and, and enlightenment, as they call it, and how they sprung up to basically, and as basically to a kind of middle-class revolution. They wouldn't get enough pieces of the pie, and they wanted to get up there and overthrow kings and nations and religion, which they felt was stifling them. And they formed secret societies because they could not... Speak out about their open policies of a a world society where the elites themselves, the intelligent ones, would rule over the lessers. And that's always been mentioned in secret societies, that that very concept of what we now call eugenics, as I should have called it, bioethics now. Since they are in control of the world and us through health, care, etc., the the eugenicists call themselves bioethics uh, professionals. And they deal with how we should live and die, basically, or even if we should live at all. Because the world has been turned into a secular humanist society, which was planned and spoken and written about a hundred years ago. And I'm going to go into that today. Back with more after this break. for the Matrix. Just mentioning the fact that history is planned and in fact the future is planned. It's been planned for an awful long time in fact. And we find uh, that articles and books were published a long time ago outlining the plan. It's kind of ongoing. It's always the same plan and the same strategies to be used. And yet when certain events eventually happen within your own lifetime and you notice them and you remember where you first read it this was going to happen maybe 20, 30 years ago. It's never presented that way in the newspapers at the time. It's always presented as though this is the only option that we have, and we have to go there. I've talked about the Council on Foreign Relations and its beginnings as a branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs in Britain. It was also run at that time, a long time ago, by Lord Milner, and before that Cecil Rhodes basically set the whole organization up. And I've read from Professor Carl Quigley, who was a member of the group. In fact, he was a historian for a while for the Society. They have to keep their own historical records. For one day, they'll publish it when we're all brain dead, and we won't care, you see. And in Tragedy and Hope, and I've read this part before, it's very, very important. Professor Carl Quigley says this from their own records, rather studying them and updating them for them the book *Tragedy and Hope, page 950, talking about, he was talking about the fact that most people get confused, they, they think that this collection of bankers and of very wealthy families, old established families, all working together, uh, people think they're communists. And he says here in page 950, this myth like all fables does in fact have a modicum of truth. It does exist and has existed for a generation it means 60 years this is printed in the 60s an international anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the communists act in fact this network which we may identify as a round table groups that's one term they use they do have round table groups has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups and they did that in the passed through the set-up and, and, and helped to work with the fascists. So it frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I've studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 60s to examine its papers and secret records. Now remember, Professor Quigley was an advisor to the state departments and different departments in the U.S. government and to the military as well, because you must understand your enemy in the military. He was a historian, he understood the histories of different peoples, their weak points and so on, the social society, their belief systems. He says, I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments because they have many front organizations. He says, I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, notably to its belief that England was an Atlantic rather than a European power and must be allied or even federated with the United States and must remain isolated from Europe well that's all altered now but it says in general my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known and it's said so simplistically there and underrated in a sense because to 1925 what he mentions here uh, is what he wants you to know being a member because he doesn't mention that Lord Milner was also one of the biggest bankers in England and he was also by the way he took over uh, the trustee of the Rhodes Scholarship and worked it with Lord Rothschild because he was Rothschild was actually left to will for Cecil Rhodes for world government and training Rhodes Scholars for how to bring in world government And it's still going on today. But it's quite fascinating because when you go into other books on this, you'll find, like Professor Anthony Sutton. Anthony Sutton wrote um, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. He also wrote Who Financed Hitler. And he came away with a different idea that was just bankers doing it because they hate having... Empires, different empires at war with each other is bad for business, and yet he he doesn't really realize what he's got his hands on in all his investigations. Because he mentions all the same names that belong to the CFR and the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and all the same bankers and foundations that fund the wars in his own books. It's all the same people. And these are the same people, as I mentioned before, the same families you'll find in the CIA. And before that, they were in the OSS. And in the British side, they were in MI5 and MI6. In Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, he goes in how, how the Wall Street companies, which again were mainly funded and, and pushed by the front organizations, like the Rockefeller Group, uh, were financing the, the setting up of the Bolsheviks. They financed them. From the beginning Russia was financed from the West from its birth as a Soviet empire or Bolshevik turned Soviet right through to, to a supposed collapse. It could not even feed itself. And he mentions on page one hundred and sixty four as his Professor Sutton, or Anthony Sutton, of Wall Street in the Bolshevik Revolution, he says united americans formed to fight communism i've warned people before about big groups that you think are going to oppose that which you oppose and so you join them they set them up in advance and here's an ideal tactic right here he says and this is important to today because they're using the same tactics today you always use the same tactics as plato said because they'll always work again if they worked before if you introduce them in the same formula It says, in 1920, an organization called United Americans was founded. It was limited to citizens of the United States and planned for 5 million members whose sole purpose would be to combat the teachings of the socialists, the communists, the IWW, the Russian organizations, and radical farmers' societies. In other words, United Americans was to fight all those institutions and groups believed to be anti-capitalist officers of the preliminary organization established to build up United Americans, this great patriotic group, were Alan Walker of the Guaranteed Trust Company. You know, if you listen, you'll see know, you the same companies and, and uh, f- uh, foundations uh, that Professor Quigley was talking about. Daniel Willard, president of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, h h Westinghouse of Westinghouse Air Brake Company, Otto H. Kahn of Kuhn, Loeb and Company, That was set up really as a a Rothschild front. And American International Corporation. These Wall Streeters were backed up by assorted university presidents and Newton W. Gilbert, former governor of the Philippines. Obviously, United Americans was at first glance exactly the kind of organization that establishment capitalists would be expected to finance and join. Its formation should have brought no great surprise. But on the other hand, as we've already seen, these financiers were so deeply involved in supporting the new Soviet regime in Russia. Although this support was behind the scenes, now listen to this recorded only in government files and not to be made public for 50 years. In a free society? you think you've ever been free? As part of United Americans, Walker, Willard, Westinghouse and Ken were playing a double game. Otto Ken. A founder of the anti-communist organisation was reported by the British socialist J. H. Thomas as having his face towards the light. Can wrote the preface to Thomas's book in 1924. Otto Can addressed the League for Industrial Democracy, that was a communist organisation, and professed common objectives with the activist socialist group. Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Willard's employer was active in the development of Russia during the 1920s. Westinghouse in 1920, the year United Americans was founded, was operating a plant in Russia that had been exempted from nationalization, and the role of guaranteed trust has already been minutely described. So here's the same guys forming a patriotic group for the publics to, to believe in. And Funding the, the the revolution, the ongoing revolution in Russia at the same time, and making a profit from it at the same time. But what's interesting, too, is that he says here, and he goes into this in detail, too, in, in a lot of detail, he says, but why allow Russia to become a competitor? This is 178, page 178. And a challenge for U.S. supremacy. In the late 19th century, Morgan, Rockefeller, and Guggenheim had demonstrated their monopolistic pro- proclivities. And that's the key to the, all of these guys. They're monopolists. And you think e pluribus unum means out of many, one for people. No, it means for corporations and the world. And when am going to go into that so I come back from this break. because they don't know about the other books as well. They miss some books and they come to their own conclusions thinking it's all about money and, and simply power. But remember, going back to Carl Quigley, he talked about the group that started off as the Cecil Rhodes Foundation that was already chartered by the British um, Crown and the backing of the British Empire, in a, in a sense. It would work outside of politics, you could bypass politics. Margaret Thatcher said she belonged to the to the group that came out of it, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. She said, we constitute a parallel government worldwide. It's not answerable to the public. Democracy is too slow. We can't get things done because people are arguing all the time. So they have plans made. They want to have them carried out, so they bypass democracy altogether. And we will look at the Council on Foreign Relations, the, the American cousin of it it's just a branch they work on the same the same agenda the exact same agenda with front organizations many front organizations working across the world and they use geopolitics as it's called geopolitics is long term strategy where you study your prey your victim your, the culture the ancient culture the phases of cultures has gone through and you work out your strategy according to Together, because in, in his book here, uh, Sutton talks about the fact that, as I say, they, they financed the, Rus- the Russian revolution, the Bolshevik revolution. It's a few bankers, big bankers with foundations as well, onto philanthropy, of course. government, as I say, they kept it secret for 50 years. What do you think they're keeping secret from you now? But the Vietnam War and the Korean War and all the rest of it, they're still under wraps. See, we, we never know the reasons, the real reasons why anything happens while we live. That's how the system is run. On page 176, and this is Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution by Sutton, He goes into some of the early players who were working with uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and the British establishment on this world agenda. He says, as Jennings C. Wise has written, historians must never forget that Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, the guy who set up the League of Nations, precursor of the United Nations, made it possible for Leon Trotsky to enter Russia with an American passport. Trotsky literally was, was going over to Russia he help start the revolution with suitcases full of money from the US banks the bankers Baruch and all these guys he was stopped at Halifax in Canada and put in the little prison near the docks and President Wilson literally sent up a, a, a an express guy with a passport from Chile to get out of the country and get the revolution going quite something eh? and that's in the Canadian records here Sibylian Trotsky was also declared himself an internationalist and here Sutton's drawing drawing the the similarities between the the, the revolutionaries and the big bankers they were both internationalists he says we've remarked with some interest his high level internationalist connections or at least his friends in Canada Trotsky then was not pro-Russian or pro-allied or pro-German as many have tried to make him out to be Trotsky was for world revolution for world dictatorship He was, in one world, an internationalist. Bolsheviks and bankers have this significant common ground internationalism. Revolution and international finance are not at all inconsistent if the result of revolution is to establish more centralized authority. It's essential for them. That's a centralized authority. That's what we have across the whole Western world now. International. Finance prefers to deal with central governments. The last thing the banking community wants is largely fair economy and decentralised power because these would disperse power. This, therefore, is an explanation that fits the evidence. This handful of bankers and promoters was not Bolshevik or Communist or Socialist or Democrat or even American. Let's go. Let's just pop back to tragedy and hope. And it really tells you on page 950... Uh, that they're often accused of being communists. The radical right thinks that's how they are. They're they're far left-wingers. Here is Sutton telling you no. It's a different thing altogether. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. is cutting through the matrix, just tying some ends together to show you how the group has operated in the past and how they're operating today. I've got a stack of books around here. At the present time, they're dealing with them and their operations right now, what they're doing today, the way they're going. Same people, same groups. But Professor Sutton thinks it's merely to do with money and power and a world without any restrictions for themselves, which is completely wrong. As Professor Quigley said, they appear to do this, they appear to be all left-wing, but they have a different agenda altogether. That's what Sutton says on page 176. It says, basically, they're trying to create a world of collectivism, as an explanation that fits the evidence the handful of bankers and promoters was not Bolshevik communist socialist democrat or even American above all else these men wanted markets preferably captive international markets and a monopoly of the captive world market as the ultimate goal they wanted markets that could be exploited monopolistically without fear of competing or competition from Russians Germans or anyone else including American businessmen outside the charm circle this close group was apolitical and immoral in 1917, had a single-minded objective, a captive market in Russia, all presented under and then intellectually protected by the shelter of a league to enforce the peace, so they set up the League of Nations, you see. Wall Street did indeed achieve its goal. American firms, controlled by the syndicate, were later to go on and build the Soviet Union, and today are well on their way to bring the Soviet military-industrial complex into the age of computers, This was written in the 70s, I think. Today, the objective is still alive and well. John D. Rockefeller expounds it in his book, The Second American Revolution, which sports a five-pointed star on the title page. The book contains a naked plea for humanism. Remember I mentioned that the other day? Secular humanism to be pushed on the public of the planet. And I was reading from Charles Galton Darwin's book, and that's what he said. There'll be a single universal culture and here is, they call it humanism, secular humanism from Rockefeller. It says, that is, from Rockefeller's book, a plea that our first priority is to work for others. Cecil Rhodes said that too. A world where the people will serve the world state. They'll serve the world state. It says here, in other words, a plea for collectivism. Now, let's tie that in with the other front organization that came up with the scam of global warming, the Club of Rome. That's one of the many front groups in the 1970s the founders came up with the idea of how to get a world tax and and, and unite the planet under a a threat from out there or anywhere and they came up with the idea of global warming said that would fit the bill but they also said they wanted to bring in a world of collectivism a collectivist society after studying the Soviet system and every other system they thought collectivism was a way to go. What's happening now? the banks in Britain and elsewhere are buying up the houses and renting them out to people. Only people who have lived in the Soviet system can recognize what's happening here and everywhere else. It says here, I just saw from Rockefeller's little book, humanism is collectivism. That's what he said. Humanism is collectivism. And he's still trotting across the planet. He's the guy At every South American meeting to do with the amalgamation of the Americas. He he funds every group down there. It comes from Foreign Relations Trilateral Commission. Again, going back through the time, back to when it was Lord Milner's group in the Round Table Society. It's got many different names. It's the same organization, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. This is notable. This is, again, going back to uh, Professor... Professor from, check yeah, my books here. Anthony Sutton. I've got four books in front of me. It says here, it's noble that the Rockefellers who have promoted this humanistic idea for a century have not turned their own property over to others. Presumably, it is implicit in the recommendation that we all work for the Rockefellers. Rockefeller's book promotes collectivism under the guises of cautious uh, conservationism and the public good, because of the public good. It is in effect a plea for the continuation of the earlier Morgan Rockefeller support of collectivist enterprises and mass subversion of individual rights. What was it they said the other day? From Galton Darwin's book, he says, We must end individualism. What does the United Nations say? They've got to end individualism. Subversion of individual rights. From Sutton's book. In brief, the public good has been and is today used as a device and an excuse for self-aggrandizement by an elitist circle that pleads for world peace and human decency. But so long as the reader looks at the world history in terms of an exorable Marxian conflict between capitalism and communism, the objectives of such an alliance between an international finance and international revolution remain elusive. You've got to stop using the terms and, and just look above it all, look down at it, just to see what's really happening. Don't be confused by terms. To solo the ludicrousness of promotion of the public good by plunderers, and, and these guys all got their starts by plundering all of them and I mean real wars of plunder so if these alliances still elude the reader then you should ponder the obvious fact that these same international interests and promoters are always willing to determine what other people should do but are signally unwilling to be the first in line to give up their own wealth and power their mouths are open their pockets are closed now at the same time uh, that these boys, the CFR and so on, the same whole group of them with bankers in it, same, same family bankers with their foundations and philanthropy, they were all already setting up the 1920s at the same time as we're still doing with the Soviet Union, Mussolini. And all of the data and the money they sent to him, from whom, etc., same boys, is all documented in this book, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. It's, a, it's incredible knowledge, incredible knowledge. Here's a guy who was big. as a, He was a mover and shaker. that was called Frederick C. Howe. I think he was even used in Canada later on in World War II. He was a mover and shaker. He knew how to get whole nations working for him. And it says, This technique was used by the monopolist to gauge society. It was set forth in the early 20th century by Frederick C. Howe, in the Confessions of a Monopolist, excellent book. First said how politics is a necessary part of business. To control industries it's necessary to control Congress and the regulators and thus make society go to work for you, the monopolist. So according to how the two principles of a successful monopolist are first, let society work for you, and second, make a business of politics. These wrote how are the basic rules of big business. And that's exactly what they do. They get the nation working for them. And of course, going back up the page, the want Rockefeller wants a world where people will serve others. He doesn't say all people, it just says people will serve others because he won't be serving anybody. That's how it works. But people should try and get hold of the book and remember you'll probably get used ones as well Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution by Anthony G. or C. Sutton excellent one to read and it takes me right down to the present day because I was thinking earlier uh, about the video I mentioned last week and I put the link on my site to a Brzezinski 30 years ago in the 70s who was promoting jihad in Afghanistan and telling them it was a holy war and God was on their side. Because at that time in geopolitics you see he and the boys in the Council of for Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission wanted to get a completely united Europe, including all of those regions too. And there were certain people standing in the way. So how would you get all changed? Get a war going with Russia. And he knew by arming the Afghanistan's that uh, Russia would have to come in, which they did. And Afghanistan for years was bombed incredibly from the air and had terrible things done on them. I remember seeing in the papers when Britain, MI6 and so on was putting all the propaganda out, they were declaring the heroes of Afghanistan. They showed you these tribesmen emerging from shelters in, in the mountains and there was all these unexploded bombs all over the place stuck in the ground from a raid. And then these guys would dismantle the bombs and take all the explosives out of them and use them. So they were the heroes then, you see. So Brzezinski and others, the guy who was still buying Obama and playing the world, playing with China and so on, long-term strategy, uh, knew what he was doing. And, of course, when Russia goes out, what happens when they go down, supposedly, and just fall apart and the wall comes down? We are all in there. The West's all in there, doing the same thing to the Afghanis as Russia was doing. And suddenly the Afghanis are bad guys again. Never are Orwell said, who are we fighting today? East Asia, West Asia? they did the good guys, bad guys. You don't know. They keep changing. Because it's long-term strategy. Yeah. After all, if the Afghanis were praised for, for fiercely fighting for their independence back in the 70s against the bad Russian bear, how come they're bad guys today for trying to do the same thing and hold on to their independence? Geopolitics. I guarantee you, Mr. Brzezinski would know exactly how long Russia would be in there. And he'd also know that down the road, the U.S. and Canada would be in there too, after the words. This is how they play it. This is how they play it. You know, a, a delegation went to the Soviet Union 15 years before the wall came down and told the president, the Soviet Union, and, and Rockefeller, by the way, was one of them, over there there'd be no more there'd be a complete European Union in 15 years with a a parliament and therefore there's no point in carrying on with the Soviet Union I've got the documentation here as well why is Mr. Rockefeller all over the planet when he's not elected to anything by the public massive comes from the Foreign Relations group, the group that you have to be asked into, and almost every major reporter is a member of it. Every TV station and newspaper owner is a member of it. Every magazine editor is a member of it. I don't know how many politicians are members of it. And we think we've got democracy. Here's a book you should look at. It's called Zygmunt Brzezinski, America and the World. By David Ignatius and it's by Brent Scowcroft now you can tell by the back page it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's for the public to believe in it's like one of these question and answer things they've worked to amongst themselves because it gives you Brzezinski formerly President Carter's National Security Advisor at the NSA Counselor and Trustee at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Professor at John Hopkins University and it has Brent Scowcroft of Scowcroft, served as National Security Advisor to Presidents George H.W. Bush and Gerald Ford, and as Military Assistant to President Nixon. He's President of the Scowcroft Group, an international business and financial advisory firm. He's also the co-author with former President George H.W. Bush, and then David Ignatius, who writes a twice-weekly column for The Washington Post, previously executive director of the International Herald Tribune, so he'd be, they're all CFR, you see, in trilateral. So remember, they're writing stuff for the public consumption, but they do give you some parts of the strategy. Because here's the same Brzezinski that was setting up jihad for, for, so that Russia would come in to Afghanistan. And he's talking about China and so on in this book. And he says here, but they're talking about China and how it go with democracy. He says... Rival, he says. This is page 116, America and the World. He says, ruthless in the pursuit of their interests. When you say the Chinese are ruthless in the pursuit of their interests, aren't you also describing the United States? Our business operations internationally are very energetic, to put it, euphemistically. Are we not disinclined to promote our interests to the maximum? But inherently, the notion of a rival business rival includes the no- notion of restraint. It's not the same thing as ruthless imperial military competition which ends up in a collision. And I think that, that thought, that realization, guides both us and the Chinese. Now remember, the group that he works for set up modern China. They set up communist China. Because the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the CFR had their Institute of Pacific Relations. Another front group, it was explained here by in tragedy and Hope again. And the whole idea was to get that whole region, including Australia, New Zealand, uh, all united under one big trading block. And they were at that for 70 years. 70 years, and it's still ongoing. So here's Brzezinski, who knows all this stuff. No, he's, he's talking to, to a, a dumbed-down public that mainly don't know this stuff. And he's giving you the, the childish version, the, childish, no, the very, very childish version. This is the second point. We know more or less how leadership operates. We know about know much less about their leadership but my own experience in dealing with leadership is that it is remarkably sophisticated eager to learn and quite deliberate in its effort to understand realities that was my first impression when I met Deng Xiaoping at the time we were able to develop a quasi secret now listen to this <laughs> now remember China was then the bad guy you also got a bad guy and, and he saw about 30 years ago when it was a bad guy At the time, we were able to develop a quasi-secret alliance against the Soviet Union. Now I thought they were both communists. Didn't we all think that at the time? It wasn't long after uh, the Korean War. The Vietnam War was still going on in the 70s. So here's Brzezinski over there with a quasi-secret alliance with the Chinese against the Soviet Union. Why? Because they'd already set up China to be the manufacturer of the world. That was still to come. This is from Brzezinski's own words, right? Which involved joint intelligence operations and joint assistance to the resistance in Afghanistan. So they were helping the Afghanis that time but the Russians. They, 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 brought on, they brought on the war with Russia by arming the Afghanis and telling them have jihad. And here he's over... And then after he's, he's telling these guys over in Afghanistan, it's a holy war, God's on your side. He runs off to China. And there he is with the top intelligence experts of China covertly against Russia this is incredible geopolitics and he says here and while generally I'm impressed by the very deliberate nature of the Chinese leadership's effort to educate themselves, let me cite you one specific example that's been intriguing me for about five years now the Chinese leadership has held at the highest level, listen to this a seminar for the top leaders, just for the top leaders like our National Security Council so they've got an, an idea they've got a clone set up in China of how it works here because they get the real dope on what's happening, not the rubbish we get in newspapers. It's this is a full day session led by some specialists. All the top leaders have to attend and here are some of the topics they've addressed. I'll be back with more of this after this break. books together which only reinforces that which I've already been saying that a long time ago a particular group arose comprising of very very important incredibly rich people bankers with all the top aristocratic families of Britain and the US initially that's where it started but now it's, it's a club across the planet of all elites you see going into a world of a collective Different technique for different parts of the world, but they always get it in the same way at the end. It becomes the same. And what we were also discussing was the rise and fall of imperial powers, something all strategists must study. And then on page one one nine, which ties into yesterday's talk, Brzezinski was talking to Jiang Zemin in China. He says, just a a footnote to what Brent said, and then an answer to your question. When I was last in China a couple of months ago, a dinner was given for me by Jiang Zemin, the former president. I asked him, what's the biggest problem you face in China? And he said, too many Chinese. He says, in a way, that's a good answer. The floating unemployed population is now about 200 million. See, they're moving them all off the land, sometimes 200 million at a time off the land into the cities. That's what's in the newspapers. They're clearing, despite doing everywhere else across the world, getting them all into the cities, as we can go down gradually together, worldwide. This is except that It floats from place to place because all this is going on. New cities are growing, huge interstate highway system, fantastic like ours. But there's no cars on them yet. But as he says, there's no cars in it, that's right. A system already about 40,000 miles. Ours built in the 1950s and 60s is 65,000 miles. The Russians are building their first superhighway from Moscow to St. Petersburg right now, and their very first, and you still drive on gravel when you try to drive from Moscow to Vladivostok. But on this larger issue of how we deal with the Chinese, first of all, with respect, this is not a civilization that's going to accommodate easily to hectoring or lettering from us. The Chinese are profoundly conscious of their history and culture and with justification. I shall really continue with this maybe tomorrow because China isn't ruling China. China was set up by the West and is still being managed by guys like Brzezinski and others of his kind who deal with them. We set up the modern China and we didn't know it. So that's it from Hamish myself tonight from Ontario, Canada. Yes, good night, and may a god or your gods go with you.